congregation. Uh, I can't think of anything better to do on a Sunday morning. I'm glad to be here with all of you. We're going to get back to our study in, uh, in Micah. And to do that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt that God is not happy with you? Have you ever felt that? Maybe, maybe you attribute that to some feeling due to some form of relentless suffering that you might be enduring. Just one crashing wave after another, just beating against the seawall of your comfort and of your security, threatening to undo you. And you're weary and you're, you're exhausted. And in that moment, you may cry out to God and ask him something like, what do you want from me? What do you want from me, God? In other words, what you're asking is, what do I have to do to really earn your favor, to merit your your favor? Last week, we looked at chapter 5, and we saw God angry with his people. And now, at the beginning of chapter 6, we enter a courtroom scene where God brings formal charges against his people because of their stubborn rebellion against him. But God has a question of his own for them. His question is this, what have I done to you? What have I done to you that you would reject me so stubbornly? And finally, in chapter 6, we're going to look at perhaps what is the most well-known verse in all of Micah and learn what it is that God really wants from his people this chapter, we'll get after this question. What kind of worship is it that God really desires and wants? So let's work through these questions now. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Micah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 together. If you're needing a Bible, please make use of one of our pew Bibles. You'll find it on page 927. And once you're there, I invite you to stand with me. As we read the word of God, follow along with me as I read. Micah 6, 1 to 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt And redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your word and your spirit would work on our hearts this morning. God, we pray that your word would bring teaching for those who need understanding, would bring reproof for those who need, who need that. Father, we pray that for those who need correction, that your word would do that as well. And God, we pray that your word would train us all in righteousness this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the first question is this, what has God done? What has God done? Notice the, the witnesses that God calls. He calls the mountains and the foundations of the earth. And this is probably because these inanimate objects are the only ones along with God who have been around since the beginning of God's relationship with his people. So they're good witnesses. Next, notice that unlike previous chapters in Micah, God's indictment here is against all his people. All his people. Before, he, he only mentioned uh, leaders and their prophets and their priests and how they've failed and how they've rejected him. But now, no one is left off the hook. As Micah progresses, that, that laser beam just gets sharper and sharper and more focused, right? It starts with, with the priests and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the prophets, but now it's, it's dialed in on everybody. No one's off the hook. And God's question to his people is, what have I done to you that you should treat me the way that you are? How have I wearied you, God wants to know. God now lists the mighty acts that he's done for his people. I think a better question would probably be, what hasn't he done for his people, right? So first off, when they were slaves for four centuries, mistreated, oppressed by the Egyptians, God broke their chains and delivered them from slavery in miraculous, epic fashion. Inflicting ten plagues upon Egypt that would loosen the stubborn grip of wicked Pharaoh on God's people. And then, when their escape seemed doomed to failure, God made a way by splitting the Red Sea in two, and his people would walk across on dry land, and the armies of Pharaoh would be swallowed up by the sea. God rose up Moses, Aaron, Aaron, Miriam, to lead his people safely through the desert. And during this time, God gave his good word, the law, to his people through Moses. He established the priesthood through Aaron. And when the Moabite king Balak sought to harm God's people by enlisting this rock star, famous prophet named, named Balaam, God intervened again and provided divine protection. 
Every time Balaam was hired by King Balak to curse God's people, he could only bless them. That's all he could do. And then Gilgal was the first stop. Shittim was the last stop before entering the promised land. And uh, Gilgal was the first stop upon entering Canaan, the, the promised land that God would bring his people safely into. And these were all stories from Israelite history that were told from their childhood. And these were the bedrock events in their history that they needed to be reminded of so that they would know the righteous acts of the Lord. And it's as if God is just grabbing them and shaking them to wake them up, calling them to remember what it is that God has done for them. He's saying, you might be stubborn and rebellious, but my love for you is more stubborn. My love for you is more stubborn. I won't give up on you. I will be faithful even when you are faithless. People of God, let me ask you this morning, what has God done for you that you need to be reminded of? What example of his stubborn love do you need to hear afresh this morning? I believe it is this. There's nothing greater than this, that God sent his son to live among his people, to show them what perfect love and justice looks like. What it looks like to walk humbly with God, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God, to do justice. He walked among his people. He called them to himself, yet they wearied of him and committed the most unjust act in all history, they killed the only just and righteous person who ever lived. But God would make that supreme injustice at the same time the most perfect display of justice and mercy that the world has ever known. For his death on the cross counted as your death. For your sin, the punishment due to you for your rebellion against God was poured out on Christ. Christ rose again on the third day as the the first fruits of, of a promise of new and eternal life for all who would follow him. And when you trust Jesus to forgive you, you are freed from a taskmaster a thousand times more cruel than Pharaoh ever was. You are freed from slavery to sin and death. This is what God has done for you. Do you believe it? Will you receive it by faith today and have freedom from sin and death? Do you need to be reminded of this today because you've strayed? Come to Jesus if that's you. If you've strayed or if you've never tasted for yourself of the grace of God, come to Jesus today. Drink deeply and freely from the bottomless well of his grace for you and know that he will never give up on you. God has been good to you. God is good to his people. The next question here is 
from the people. What, what do you want from me? What do you want from me, God? The people of Micah's day had, had forgotten the works of God for them. Maybe not intellectually, but certainly it was far from their hearts. They began to treat God like any other pagan, false god. The favor of the gods was thought to be achieved through ritual. Making this sacrifice, doing this act. And also, and so in verses 6 and 7, the the people asked the Lord, What work? What sacrifice do we need to do to have your favor? What have we got to do? That's how all the other gods of the ancient world worked. What do you have to do to earn the favor of that God? In other words, they're asking, what do you want from us? Three examples of sacrifices are given here. And they increase in intensity each time. And they are clearly hyperbolic for emphasis. Uh, Will the Lord be pleased with 10,000 rivers of oil? That's not something anyone could actually give. It's, it's like saying today, what if I gave you all the money in the whole world, God? What if I gave it all to you? Of course, not many of us or any of us have the means to do that, but you can sense the frustration, right? The, the, uh, the weariness here. What if I gave you everything, God? And the most extreme example is given child sacrifice. What do you want from me, God? To give you my firstborn son? Then will you be happy? Will I have your favor? Is this what I've got to do? But I want you to notice something here. This way of thinking is all about performance. It's all about performance. What can you offer God that you might earn his favor? Today, it's not about burnt offerings of year-old calves or rivers of oil or even child sacrifice. But people are still prone to performance. They want to know that they measure up. They want to know that they've earned their keep. They want to know that that they're making God happy. How might you answer this question today? What do you want from me, God? Maybe it's I'll start giving more money to the church. How about that, God? I'll increase my giving. Then, then will you be happy with me? Or maybe this, I'll, I'll volunteer more. Maybe I'll be a Sunday school teacher for the children. How about that, God? Will that be enough? Will that be enough? I know what will make God happy. I'll join the music team. Now lead the congregation in singing each Sunday. Not enough yet? I'm going to go into training to become a pastor. And then I'll preach the word every Sunday for God's people. That will get your attention, right God? Or I'll sell my home and become a missionary to some unreached exotic people group. How about that God? Is that what you want from me? Is that what it will take to finally make you happy with me? This is the cry of of God's people here in verses 6 and 7. And then we transition to what God really wants. What God really wants. With what shall I come before you? 
Lord? The people ask. And God's response is, is that it's not by performance. In fact, nothing you can do will ever merit acceptance with God. Look back at verse 4 and notice this progression. First, before anything, God redeems his people out of slavery in Egypt. He, he saves them. He rescues them. He delivers them. Then, this is the next point, then, it says he sends Moses, who is the one responsible for bringing them the law. Notice that God did not give them the law first and then deliver them. In other words, he doesn't give us law in order for us to earn his favor by obeying it. We are to obey the law of God out of love for him who already saved you. Do you notice the difference? It turns that performance mentality upside down and on its head. Look what he gives next. He gives Aaron. Aaron was the one through whom God brought the priesthood along with the sacrifices for atonement for sin. So first, God saves his people. Then he gives them the law to show them how saved people should live out of love for him. Then, knowing that they would fail over and over again, he gives them the priesthood for the atonement for sin so they could be welcomed back into his presence through atonement for sin. And today, Jesus Christ is all of these things for you. And the irony at the end of verse 7 is rich because God cannot, uh, because we cannot come to God, rather, by offering our firstborn to atone for the sin of our souls. But this is exactly what God does for us. He gave his firstborn to die in your place for your sins. So it is Jesus who saves us in this way. And it is Jesus who shows us how to live a life that pleases God. And it is Jesus who we are to run to when we fail, when we fall in our sin, because he is our perfect high priest who offered up his life once for the forgiveness of sins. It's Jesus. We sing that this morning. All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. And you know what? All you need is Christ. Now verse 8 simply shows us how people who have been saved should live out of gratitude. Not to earn God's favor because you already have it by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's easiest to understand these three things as, as flowing from one to another or, or building from one to the next like this. You do justice because you love mercy. And you love mercy or kindness because you walk humbly with God. The word used for kindness here is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is a word that is used to describe God's faithful, loyal, never giving up 
love. Elsewhere, hesed is often translated as steadfast love. Psalm 40, verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your hesed, your steadfast love, and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. It's God's hesed love that compelled him to redeem his people from slavery in Egypt. Not, not because they deserved it. Not because they earned any favor with him. I love how Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8 puts this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's because the Lord loves you. Not because you merit anything in and of yourself to appease him or to make him happy. To encounter a hesed love like God's who loves you, not because of anything that you bring to the table, to know that you are loved with such faithfulness, dare I say stubbornness, changes a person. Now, to walk with someone is a metaphor for being in in fellowship with them and sharing the same values as they do. So, as you are in fellowship with God, who is a God of Hesed, as you walk with him, you begin to love Hesed too. And you begin to love others like God has loved you. And this finally results in doing justice. Working for the good of those who are oppressed, who are marginalized and weak. It's these who are so often exploited and oppressed. And we see so clearly in the scriptures that God takes up their cause. And we're thankful that he does because that's exactly what he's done for us. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, Deuteronomy ten eighteen. And he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 146, 7. He executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. So as we walk humbly with God, We love Hesed as he loves Hesed, which results in doing justice for the weak and oppressed. And this is not a a begrudging act of duty, but it's motivated by Hesed and results in our joy. Listen to Proverbs 21.15. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous but terror to evildoers. Hear this as, as we close in a moment. We'll transition to the table. 
It's deadly if you get this backwards. Your acts of justice cannot flow from a performance-oriented heart, but it must flow from fellowship with God who loves Hesed. Your worship cannot only consist of ritual that is void of fellowship with God. Loving Hesed in the doing of justice, Jesus reserves some of his harshest words for those who worship, for whom worship is performance and and lack these things. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Remember the hesed love of God for you, shown most clearly through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. To forgive the sin of your soul. An undeserved gift of grace that will transform you into a person who walks humbly with God, who loves Hesed, and who does justice. Pray with me now as we transition to the table. Almighty and holy God, your love for justice delights our hearts. If you were not a just and holy God, this world which you created and govern down to the most microscopic detail would be unbearable to live in. However, we also admit that your love for justice terrifies our souls if we were to count the sins that we have committed only today, we know that we would deserve your great anger and punishment. We have entertained evil thoughts toward others and have preferred ourselves and our favorite people over those who are outcasts in need of our love and care. We have made little of our sins excusing them and even using your great forgiveness as a way of avoiding your commands. We have wearied you by laughing over evil things that we ought to hate. We have grieved you by hating good things and calling them evil simply because they bore us or make us feel uncomfortable. Father, we deserve your judgment. Lord, have mercy on us. We thank you that you have poured out the whole fire of your wrath on Jesus in our place. He never wearied you, but brought you perfect delight during every moment of his life. He hated evil and loved good. He went out of his way to minister to those who were marginalized and unloved. We thank you that you are willing to look on his obedience and allow it to stand in our place 
Father, thank you. Holy Spirit, there is nothing we can do to satisfy God's justice. If even our best acts are like filthy rags, then we need the goodness of Jesus to cover us just as much on our best days as on our worst days. Remind us often that the blood of Christ erases our sin and that God speaks to us in love, not in exasperation and disappointment. Ignite our hearts with a fiery gratitude that compels us to adore our Savior, to love what he calls good. Fill our hearts with your astonishing love and send us out into a hurting world to love the fatherless, the widow, the strange and the awkward in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. He himself bore our sins 